Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us today. My name is Brandon Arnold with the Cato Institute, and uh, we're going to talk today a little bit about uh, unions and uh, pose the question, are unions good for America? Uh, but before we get to our program, just a couple uh, quick notes. Um, first of all, uh, available on the registration table should have been an invitation to uh, next week's uh, Hill briefing. We're going to be asking, uh, when does rail transit make sense? Uh, that briefing will take place Friday, uh, April 9th at noon. Uh, here in Rayburn, B339. There's more information on our website, and like I said, there should be flyers out there, so hopefully you all can join us for that uh, that briefing as well. Also, I wanted to make sure you guys picked up a copy of uh, Cato Journal. This is actually the inspiration for today's event. Uh, the, the title of that uh, uh, in, uh, is Our Union's Good for America, the same title as our, uh, as our briefing, and there are a number of articles there that we won't get a chance to, uh, to touch on the subject matter um, at all in, the, in the, the limited confines of today's Hill briefing. So uh, a lot of great articles in there. Please pick up a copy in addition to, to having some on hand today. Uh, you can also access all of that on our website, cato.org. Um, with that, I'll introduce our first speaker. We're very pleased to have uh, Armand Tiblo with us today. He is the author of one of the articles uh, in Cato Journal, the article Unions, the Rule of Law, and Political Rent-Seeking. Uh, he's also authored a number of, uh, of different articles and books on the subject of, uh, of unions. Um, one in particular uh, is a book he wrote uh, several years back, Union Violence, the Record and Response by Courts, Legislatures, and the NLRB. Uh, Dr. Tibo is a graduate of Princeton University and the Wharton School of Business. Um, he was a tenured professor at the University of Maryland until 1987 uh, when he joined the North Charles Street Design Organization as a full-time CFO and director of research. With that, I'll turn things over to Armand Tibo. I thought you would you like me to go up there? Or? Uh, yeah, actually, yeah. All right. Just for uh, recording purposes. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I've been told it's good to start with something that gets your attention. How's this? The topic we're discussing today, public unionism and its consequences, is very likely to be the most important domestic economic issue of the next decade. If wage demands and pension and health benefits of unionized public employees are not derailed from their current path, public unionism by itself will more than likely bankrupt most of the states, and probably the nation as a whole, even before Social Security, the new health care entitlements, cap and trade can get around to it. The engine behind this is what I called in my uh, Cato article, political rent-seeking. And it's important for us to understand its relationship to the growth of public employee unionism and to reckon with its consequences. It is the elephant standing here in the elevator with us, and I think that it's time that we acknowledge it. Last Friday's Wall Street Journal lead editorial was called Government Pay Boom. It notes that public employees earn salaries that average 28% higher than private workers and that their benefits are around 70% higher, with the benefit gap accounted for entirely by unionized public employees, non-unionized public employees having about the same benefits as private workers do. The, editorials ha the editorial has examples of public employee excesses. There are 3,000 retired teachers in Orange County, California alone, 3,000, collecting $100,000 or more per year in retirement benefits that will continue adjusted for inflation for their entire natural lives and those of their spouses. In Ohio, 
there are 15,857 faculty and staff members now receiving a total of $741 million a year in pension benefits. And each and every one of them, each and every one of the 15,857 is also still working for the system in a full-time job, often the same job that he or she retired from. These folks are making upwards of $200,000 a year without the need to work overtime. Well, lucky them, you might say. And don't you wish you could be in their place? Don't you wish you could have the same deal? If you happen to be a unionized public employee anywhere, the problem is that you may soon have that same deal. But the problem is not yours, it's ours. The dystopian aspects of public largesse, of which these examples are representative, is that government pension systems driven by union demands are already at this moment underfunded by $3.2 trillion. Lord, how we love to kick around these big numbers. What can that possibly mean? That's $27,000 for every household in the United States. Illinois is out there actually issuing bonds right now, $3.5 billion of them, to meet this year's mandatory annual contributions to worker retirement programs. Programs whose underfunded liabilities in that state already exceed a total of $85 billion. About three years worth of the state's entire tax revenues. Will those bonds ever be redeemed, do you think? The situation is worse in New Jersey. It's worse still in New York. It's even worse in California. And as I'm about to explain to you, this is all going to get increasingly worse across the board until the country's economy literally explodes, probably sometime within the next 10 years. The culprit is public unionism and public rent-seeking, political rent-seeking. That's the elephant. That's the elephant standing right here with us. Do I have your attention yet? Perhaps you're convinced that I'm chicken little and that the sky is not really falling. But let me take you through the history of it so maybe you'll understand why I'm so concerned. I want you to see the nature of unionism and its relationship to economic rents and how this differs in public employment and the likely consequences of that. I only have time for a very broad brush treatment, uh, but this is all laid out properly nuanced uh, in my article in the Cato Journal that I hope you have a copy of and that you'll find time to read. <clears throat> First, you have to understand why it is that unions exist. They exist exclusively for the purpose of seizing for themselves and their members a larger piece of the economic pie than could be achieved or sustained through free market operations. That is, seizing more or even all of the economic rents of the system. Now, what are these economic rents? Any economic system that is not one of pure and perfect competition will produce economic rents. These are the unearned excesses uh, that would not exist in a perfectly competitive system. They're profits generated by fooling the public into buying your products, eh? Or profits that come from inventing a better mousetrap but not sharing the secrets with others. But most important, <coughs> economic rents are the extra profits that come from producing and selling any product say flea collars or 200,000 ton cruise ships, more efficiently and better than others can do it until the others catch on and catch up. 
These economic rents might logically be supposed to a sheet to the entrepreneur, but they could lie with any of the factors of production, with capital, with management, with labor, even support services. In private enterprises, they're variable over time and circumstance, and within any organized unit, they are a zero-sum game. If more economic rent goes to capital, less is available for management or labor. Enter the unions. Seeking a greater share of the economic rents of enterprise, they want more of it, not because they created it, although they may have participated, but because it's there for the possible taking. I know of no other non-criminal organization so baldly oriented toward self-fulfillment as labor unions. It may be undiplomatic to say so, but plundering the economic system for personal gain is what unions do. Now you probably know the essentials of labor union history in the United States, how unions struggled before managing to elicit ideological support from the progressive movement and then with the New Deal achieved active government support for their rent sharing, such that government policy became increasingly difficult to differentiate from union wants. So I won't belabor them here. Again, you can see my article for details. How government support for union rent sharing is bought and what the societal costs of practicing uh, that purchase might be were put forth by Gordon Tulloch in an interesting and perhaps arguable theory about government rent seeking. But the outcome is historical. Unions did indeed buy the hearts and help of government. We know this not only from the laws and administrative decisions on the books, but also because between the start of the New Deal and about the late 1950s, unionism, newly empowered by government to win most contests with private employers, rose from around 20% of the workforce to well over 50%, and in some industries like construction or coal mining into the high 60s. But something happened after about 1958 so that, uh, or so, that, that caused unionism to begin its decline then, to where today unions represent less than 10%, less than 10% of the private productive workforce. Some might point to the Taft-Hartley Act, but that was essentially toothless. Now, what happened is that unions had by then already become so successful at grabbing the economic rents of the private productive system that the system not only ran out of what was available to share with them, in some cases it ran out of the possibility of raising more. Unions may have been able to level the playing field among competitors in, for example, the automobile industry by unionizing all of the major players and driving up their costs in lockstep, but it could not demand excessive wages at Toyota or Mitsubishi. Companies like U.S. Steel and General Motors began to be unable to generate any economic excesses in their markets, despite the fact that they had protectionist tariffs and a huge head start over worldwide competitors. So that our large unionized companies, and even some whole industries like coal mining, shipbuilding, or garment working, like maritime industries or railroads or steel making, began to decline, taking their unions with them. Nevertheless, despite this precipitous decline, over the past couple of years, union membership has actually been growing. Now, how can that be? Unions discovered the ultimate honeypot in public employment, starting in the early 1960s, when unionization first became politically encouraged by JFK. The need for unions to protect the sensibilities of private servants, uh, of uh, public servants, is hard to reconcile with the claims made for the need for unions in earlier eras, 
when it was uh, alleged to be a necessary foil to the plutocrats and the grasping capitalists who were said to have dominated the industry then. Indeed, public employees were already well protected by civil service regulations, already had elaborate seniority rules for advancement, essentially lifelong job security, superior or even extra special fringe benefits, more vacation time than most, superb working conditions, etc., all given in exchange for what were supposed to be somewhat anemic wages. Both the putative benefits of unions and their organizing tools, the strike and the uh, work stoppages, were generally inapplicable in public employment. Nevertheless, public unionism grew, and as of now, more than two-thirds of state and local employees are members of unions. Significantly, there are none of the limits to public union demands that eventually overtook private unions. There are few motivations for government employers to try to thwart demands from their public employees. What would be the point? Unlike in the private sector, there's no bottom line to maintain, no competing claims for capital or management, no worry about cheaper competition. Government has no competitors, or by competing demands from other sectors. Furthermore, in the public sector, economic rents are not a zero-sum game. This is why political rent sharing is different in buying it, unions have bought government's unique ability to assign to itself more economic rent through taxation, inflation, or deficit spending. So the size of the union's rent-sharing pie is almost infinitely expandable. The operative word is almost. Direct and indirect application of unions' political rent-sharing is already placing strains in the public sector operations of most states and municipalities of the nation and have impacted the federal, on the federal level as well, not only because some federal employees are unionized, but also because the federal government is, after all, the ultimate guarantor of failing states in the same way that the EU is the fiscal guarantor of the central banks of Greece and Portugal. More and more states will shortly be trudging down the line to functional bankruptcy due to political rent sharing, and the federal government may follow them down that rat hole. Because it's unlikely that the political courage necessary to destroy the public unions will arise before the approaching cataclysm is well advanced, I predict painful times ahead for the nation. Do I have any particulars for you to work on? Unfortunately, no. I spent most of my adult career trying to get something reasonable done about an easy problem, the mess that's the Davis-Bacon Act, blisteringly outmoded, demonstrably idiotic in application. But I've made only tiny progress, a couple of meaningless modifications to it during years of Republican administration and Congresses. This public rent-seeking is a much bigger problem, and it will take a concerted effort by all of us interested in saving the future of the nation. I feel certain that if we don't get together and find some way to do that very shortly, the elephant here in the elevator that we're still trying to disregard may well sit all over us. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, next up we have uh, Daniel Griswold. He is the uh, director of the Center for Trade Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. Um, he wrote the article in uh, Cato Journal, Unions Protectionism in U.S. Competition. I'm sorry, in U.S. Competitiveness. Uh, he's also the author of uh, a new Cato book, Mad About Trade, which provides uh, a really good argument for uh, increasing uh, free trade in, in, in this country and worldwide. Uh, 
uh, I think it's 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 really well well written in that it speaks to to Main Street, where uh, a lot, too often I think populist fear mongering uh, uh, is is kind of rules the debate. Um, uh, prior to joining Cato, uh, Dan was the editorial page editor of a newspaper in Colorado, the Colorado Springs Gazette, and he also spent some time here on Capitol Hill as a congressional press secretary. Uh, he holds a bachelor's degree in journalism from the University of Wisconsin at Madison and a diploma in economics and master's degree in uh, politics of the world economy from the London School of Economics. With that, Dan Griswold. Thank you very much, Brandon, and thank you, everybody, for coming today. <clears throat> My assignment in this special issue of the Cato Journal was to look at the, the nexus of union activity and globalization. And you know, uh, organized labor is very, uh, has a very heavy presence in the trade debate here in the United States today. In fact, uh, it's pretty hard to find a piece of uh, trade liberalizing legislation that organized labor likes. Uh, they pretty much opposed... Uh, all trade liberalization that comes down the pike, and they have a few ideas of their own in terms of uh, legislation against China, uh, trade with China, in terms of uh, labor and environmental standards being uh, a, a part of uh, demands in, in future agreements. Interestingly, it wasn't always that way. In fact, up until the 1960s, uh, organized labor generally supported trade liberalization in the United States. They favored the Reciprocal Trade Agreements Act uh, under uh, President Roosevelt, FDR, uh, they supported the Trade Expansion Act of 1962 uh, under President Kennedy, uh, but things have changed uh, pretty dramatically since then. I basically tackle two questions in my article. Uh, is free trade bad for unions? Uh, and are unions bad for uh, uh, trade and the competitiveness of U.S. industry? And the answer I come to is a qualified yes on both of those questions. Uh, just the circumstantial evidence seems to be pretty clear that unions have not fared well in our more globalized era. All indica indicators of globalization are up, trade, investment, uh, immigration, and union representation in the private sector, importantly. My colleague Chris Edwards is going to talk about the public sector in a minute. But in the private sector, uh, union density, the share of workers uh, belonging to labor unions, has dropped from about a third of workers in the 1950s to under 8% of, of workers today. And in theory, it looks also like trade would not be good for unions. Uh, the competitiveness brought to our economy by uh, more trade and globalization tends to drain out those rents uh, that the professor was talking about uh, a moment ago, reducing profits. There's just less there for private sector unions uh, to get a hold of. Businesses are less able to pass the additional costs of unionization on to their customers, uh, and it just makes uh, organizing uh, uh, tougher for, for unions. And then, of course, uh, unions have uh, hopped onto this narrative, uh, and you hear it all the time that basically uh, trade has led to the, to the decline of U.S. manufacturing. I, I dispute that in my book, but that's the story out there, and of course, uh, unions do better in manufacturing, and so the shift is from union manufactured workers uh, to non union. Uh, and supposedly less paid uh, ser service workers. Well, uh, there's, a, there's a problem with that uh, scenario. The evidence doesn't support it. Uh, and I cite work by Richard Baldwin and others that shows that what's, what's been happening is not so much the deindustrialization of America as the deunionization. Uh, the story of the decline of private, private sector unionization is not a, that more unionized sectors have declined 
and less unionized sectors have grown. It's been across sectors and across regions of the country, an economy-wide decline in union uh, representation. <clears throat> in fact, uh, according to, uh, to, to Richard Baldwin, uh, only about 10% of the decline in private sector unionization can be explained by the shift from more unionized sectors to less unionized sectors. What's behind the decline in private sector unionization? Well, uh, much more important are things like the growth in the presence in the workforce of women and workers in the South and white-collar workers who are all less, for various reasons, less inclined uh, to support unionization, uh, domestic deregulation of transportation, um, less focus on organizing by unions. They've been putting more of their resources into, oh, winning elections, uh, primarily for, for Democrats and less into uh, organizing, and that's been a debate within uh, organized labor. Um, government has co-opted uh, many of the traditional functions of unions, providing things like uh, uh, accident insurance or unemployment insurance, uh, uh, more generous leave policies, that sort of thing. A general decline in public sympathy for unions and an increase in the willingness of businesses to resist unionization. Uh, and then, of course, technology has also uh, tended to undermine some of the uh, leverage of unions, the spread of the Internet and information and, and, and that, that sort of thing. I cite one study here by a couple of academics named Drescher and Gaston who also pointed out that it isn't so much economic globalization as what they call social globalization that has uh, damaged uh, unionization in the United States. They define social globalization as the spread of ideas, information, images, and people. And uh, they come up with 17 indicators of social globalization, including uh, long-distance uh, uh, international telephone traffic, the movement of people, tourism, media penetration, uh, internet use, uh, even the, the number of McDonald's franchises. Uh, and they found there's a, a very strong correlation between the spread of social globalization and the decline of unions. And they say it's all part of a, a broader uh, intellectual shift from collectivization uh, to individualism. May, may not uh, seem to be the way things are going right now, but that's been the, one of the broader trends. And so the bottom line is unions do have some reason, union organizers have, do have some reasons to fear the spread of free trade and globalization. It's just not quite uh, for the reasons that we hear on cable TV. Well, the second question. Uh, there, uh, the evidence is, is quite significant that unions do affect the competitiveness of U.S. Uh, industry. Basically, unionization leaves U.S. companies less able to compete in global and domestic markets. And it's a, a, a fairly simple uh, analysis. Uh, a lot of, uh, leads you to a lot of uh, finer details, but it's basically this. Unions have been successful in raising the wages and benefits of their members. Estimated 15 to 20 percent uh, union premium uh, for unionization over non-unionization. But they have uh, been less successful and have, in fact, haven't been successful at all in raising the productivity of workers. And if it has, it's been marginal, much less than the cost. Well, if you're a business and your costs go up 15 to 20 percent, but your productivity barely budges, that just becomes an extra cost that you have to bear. Uh, and I cite the work of uh, Bruce Hirsch, 
of Georgia State uh, University. He's uh, been uh, the premier academic investigating this. He basically likens that to a union tax of union representation. And what it means is that if you look at a unionized firm and compare it to a comparable non-unionized firm, unionization means profits will be 10 to 20 percent less, uh, capital investment will be 6 percent less, spending on research and development will be 15 percent less. According to Hirsch, it amounts to an increase in the corporate tax rate just from unionization of about 30 percent. Well, of course, this means that all other things being equal, a unionized firm is going to be at a disadvantage in a competitive marketplace. And the result is, this is, can be statistically demonstrated, I cited uh, in my article, that unionized firms lose ground in terms of market share, both domestically uh, and in global markets. They don't tend to have a higher, it's interesting, they don't have a higher failure rate. They don't go out of business at any higher rate, uh, but they lose market share. Unions tend to realize when the employer is about to go over the cliff that they have to give some concessions, but the bottom line is they inevitably lose market share. An interesting example, very pertinent today, is the automobile industry. You know, despite what you hear, over the, long, the longer term, the U.S. automobile industry, broadly understood, has not been in decline. In fact, from 1973 to 2006, the output and employment numbers of the U.S. automobile industry were re remarkably stable. What was happening was a shift within the industry from the more unionized uh, Detroit Three to the non-unionized, often foreign-owned producers uh, in the South. <clears throat> from 1973 to 2006, the share of automobile workers in the United States who were unionized fell from 71% to 26%. That, in, in a nutshell, is the, is the story. Well, to conclude, and my conclusion in my article, is that uh, for, for their own benefit and the benefit of the U.S. private sector economy, uh, organized labor has to bring itself into the 21st century. Uh, in his book, The Road to Serfdom, uh, written in 1944, uh, Friedrich Hayek, uh, one of the problems he identified is that we had uh, both organized capital and organized labor in the United States, both of them resisting uh, competition favoring domestic regulations that stifled uh, competition. Of course, Hayek rightly saw that as a, as a tremendous problem for the U.S. economy. I think it's fair to say what's happened since then is most U.S. business sectors have caught on to our more globalized, competitive uh, world in the 21st century. Most U.S. businesses today are globally competitive, or at least they're trying to be. They know they have to compete in global markets. Uh, they favor uh, deregulation and the opening up of markets. Uh, not true of organized labor. And I think what uh, organized labor needs to survive in this century and to stop that inevitable uh, decline uh, in private sector, what seems to be in the inevitable decline of private sector unionization, is to uh, <clears throat> seek contracts that allow the companies to be more globally uh, competitive. We need to have labor laws. Uh, that do not favor the stifling of competition in the labor market. We have to say no to the demands of organized labor leaders who want to stifle competition in product markets through trade protection and the re-regulation uh, of markets. Thank you very much.
Thanks, Dan. Uh, our final speaker for today is uh, Chris Edwards. Chris is the Director of Tax Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, where he uh, is an expert on both federal and state uh, tax and budget issues. He's also the author of Downsizing the Government, uh, which is an excellent resource for Hill staffers. It's got all sorts of charts and, uh, and information on programs within the federal government that should be cut or uh, privatized or consolidated. Uh, and actually, he has recently created a website, downsizingthegovernment.org, uh, which has some more updated information. I highly encourage you to, to check it out. Um, prior to uh, joining the Cato Institute, uh, Chris was a uh, senior economist uh, at the Congressional Joint Economic Committee. Uh, he also served as a consultant and manager with PricewaterhouseCoopers and as an economist at the Tax Foundation. Uh, in the Cato Journal article we're talking about today, he's the author of the public sector of the article, "The Public Sector Unions and the Rising Cost of Employee Compensation," and uh, he'll talk about that subject right now. Thanks a lot, Brandon. Uh, my topic today is public sector unions. Why do public sector unions uh, matter? And I realize, of course, I'm talking to an audience here that's mainly uh, public sector employees. Uh, uh, but the good news for me is I guess the Capitol Hill staffers are not unionized, so uh, there won't be too many tomatoes thrown at me today, hopefully. Uh, why do public sector unions matter? I'm going to talk about three reasons. Uh, one, uh, public sector unions tend to increase compensation uh, in the public sector and thus increase costs to taxpayers. Uh, two, public sector unions tend to reduce government efficiency. And three, public sector unions have a, have a broad and increasingly uh, broad uh, effect on public policy in general. Before I get into those uh, three reasons, uh, let me just uh, touch on a bit of background on public sector unions. Uh, our man uh, covered uh, a bit of this, uh, but uh, currently 39% uh, of the 20 million uh, state and local workers in the United States uh, are unionized. Uh, that's a unionization rate five times greater than in the private sector. Interestingly, if you go back 60 years to the 1950s, uh, it was generally agreed and thought that uh, the public sector government workers should not be unionized. Uh, so the privileges given to unions under the 1935 Wagner Act, collective bargaining privileges, uh, were not applied uh, in, the, in the public sector. That all changed dramatically during the 60s and 70s. Uh, for a 15-year period starting uh, around 1960, uh, dozens of states passed collective bargaining uh, laws uh, for their public sector workforces. Uh, that had a dramatic effect on public sector unionization. Public sector unionization started to rise dramatically. Uh, today, half the states have collective bargaining for essentially all their state and local workers. A quarter of the states have collective bargaining for some of their public sector workers. And the remaining uh, quarter of the states, about 12 states, have no collective bargaining uh, in the public sector. They are essentially union-free uh, in the public sector. Interestingly, uh, unionization uh, shares in the public sector vary extremely dramatically by state. Some states like New York, uh, California, uh, New Jersey have public sector unionization rates of about 70 percent. Other states, such as North Carolina and Virginia, have public sector unionization rates of only about 10 percent. Those dramatic differences relate to uh, collective bargaining laws. States like uh, North Carolina and Virginia have legislation that bans collective bargaining in the public sector, and thus they have a very low rate of unionization. And also so-called 
agency shop rules. Agency shop rules uh, are rules that basically uh, require um, uh, mandatory union dues uh, when individuals join uh, certain public sector agencies. So there's 28 states today that are that have agency shop rules or um, forced union due requirements, and 22 states are so-called right-to-work states, states where you cannot be forced to pay a fee or a due to a public sector uh, to a to a union. So why does all this matter? Again, there are three reasons. So the first reason why why this matters, why public sector unionism matters, is compensation. And uh, our man touched on this, but uh, if you look at uh, broadly at the 20 million state and local workers in the United States, their average uh, compensation, wages and benefits, are 45% higher than the average in the private sector. Uh, that data is from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Uh, the BLS actually breaks down this data uh, by region. And uh, you can compare uh, this, this wage and compensation data to unionization in different parts of the country. So, for example, if you look at the, uh, the, the uh, Pacific region, which is defined by the BLS, which is basically California and Oregon, uh, you've got a very uh, highly uh, unionized workforce, about 64 percent. Uh, and the, the private sector, the public sector advantage over the private sector is about 60%. So nationwide public sector workers earn about 45% more. Uh, in highly unionized states, like on the Pacific Coast, they earn 60% more. On the other hand, if you go down to uh, the southern states and southeastern states, uh, they have a very low rate of unionization in the, in the public sector, and the public sector pay advantage is only about 26% uh, higher. So clearly, public sector unionization uh, tends to raise uh, wages and compensation in those states that have a high degree of unionization. The second reason why public sector unionization matters is, is that unions make government operations, they make government agencies less efficient. And um, a lot of us are familiar with, with the reasons why. Uh, unions tend to protect poorly performing workers. Um, they often push for larger staffing levels and agencies than is really requ required. Uh, they discourage the use of volunteers in local government services. And if you sort of Google, you will find news stories from across the country uh, about issues such as uh, um, some, some uh, school districts like to, to use um, um, volunteers for, for uh, elementary school crossing guards, uh, but in states with high degrees of unionization, they don't like volunteers uh, in, in, local in the local government, and they try to replace those uh, volunteers with, uh, with uh, union members. Uh, and in general, you know, um, there's no doubt that uh, uh, public sector unions create a very rule-laden workforce uh, in the schools and in other parts of the public sector. Now, in the private sector, uh, I think uh, Dan might have mentioned this, in the private sector, uh, uh, firms can sort of mitigate these, uh, these anti-efficiency problems caused uh, by unions. If unions in the private sector tend to push up wages and benefits above the, the market level, uh, firms can react and they can, for example, substitute more capital uh, for labor. But in the public sector, those sorts of reactions uh, don't occur as much. Um, public sector managers, uh, managers of state and local agencies have less flexibility to respond um, to the extra costs of, uh, extra costs of unions. A final type of uh, inefficiency caused by public sector unions uh, are strikes. Um, some states uh, allow strikes in the public sector for various uh, groups of their workers. So, for example, uh, there's an interesting story back in November. Uh, transit workers in Philadelphia uh, went on strike. Uh, the, the workers who run the uh, monopoly uh, bus and rail services in Philadelphia, uh, they were on strike for a week. Uh, that caused an enormous dislocation 
and problem uh, for the 800,000 residents of uh, Metro Philadelphia who rely on these monopoly government transit services. Uh, so unions can uh, have these sort of broader uh, economic effects like that. The third and final reason why uh, unions in the public sector are important uh, is that uh, they are unions are public sector unions have become uh, some of the most powerful special interest groups uh, in the nation. Uh, they generally favor increases in government spending, uh, which, of course, they personally benefit from. Um, if they lobby for more public spending, it, it tends to uh, benefit um, uh, themselves. And so there's sort of a conflict of interest in, in the public sector. Public sector, uh, public sector workers are actually more likely to vote than other Americans, which increases their uh, political power. Uh, and public sector unions are very active in political campaigns. If you go back to the, the 2008 election cycle, for example, uh, public sector unions spent $165 million on campaigns and ballot measures across the country. Uh, public sector unions tend to fight against uh, school choice, against uh, privatization of government services, and other policies that impact the efficiency of government operations. Uh, this matters more than ever because state and local governments across the country uh, are in a terrible fiscal situation. Many of them are running gigantic budget deficits. Uh, they've got massive uh, uh, underfunding or overpromised uh, pension plans. They've got uh, enormously uh, underfunded health care plans. Uh, and, there, and there's many uh, other fiscal problems that state and local governments face. State and local managers, state and local policymakers need more flexibility than ever to respond to these severe problems they face. And unfortunately, public sector unions in the states with high degrees of unionization uh, pose a hurdle to uh, reforms. And we can certainly see that uh, in New Jersey uh, these days where the new governor is trying to make some reforms uh, in the public sector. So to, uh, to conclude on, on this then, uh, you know, like other private sector groups, uh, unions certainly have free speech rights to, uh, to uh, get involved in public policy and to uh, speak their mind. Uh, but collective bargaining gives union the exclusive right to speak uh, for covered workers. I think that's inconsistent with uh, freedom of association. I think that collective bargaining gives uh, union workers a privileged position in our democracy uh, to lobby the government uh, that other private groups uh, don't have. So my uh, policy recommendation is that state governments uh, should ban collective bargaining in the public sector uh, following the lead of uh, states like Virginia and uh, North Carolina. Interestingly, uh, in the early uh, 1990s, a uh, Democrat governor in Virginia, Douglas Wilder, uh, signed leg legislation that banned collective bargaining uh, in Virginia. No uh, state agencies or, or uh, city and county governments in Virginia uh, can enter into collective bargaining agreements. Uh, I think that's the right policy. Uh, I think that, uh, again, that uh, public employees should be free to uh, join voluntary worker associations as they do uh, in Virginia, but they shouldn't be given a special legal status uh, and handed extra power uh, to block, uh, I think, desperately uh, needed reforms in state government. Thanks a lot.